Please have a seat. So we're in this series called God's Big Picture, and it's really a reality check for us. It's an opportunity for us to discover or to rediscover what is God's plan and how is it revealed to us in a book that is made up of 66 smaller books written by about 40 authors over the course of 2,000 years, inspired by God's Holy Spirit. God's big picture given to us that tells us the overarching theme of this amazing book, which is the fact that God is saving the world through Jesus Christ. God has saved, God is saving, and God will save the world through Jesus Christ. And last week, Stephen helped us to look at the first, as I suppose, um, part of that overall story in terms of the pattern of the kingdom in which we heard about from Genesis chapter 1 how God created everything and God created everything good. And today it's about the perished kingdom. Last week was all the good news. This week we start with all the bad news, but we will see there's always good news because God is always good. We didn't read Genesis chapter 2 last week because Genesis chapter 1 is a long chapter in itself, and it is the first creation narrative of the Bible, uh, obviously just in terms of opening the whole book. But there is a second creation narrative, and it's in Genesis chapter 2. We didn't read it last week. I know some of you studied it in life groups. And those are two complementary creation narratives set side by side. And each of them tell us truths about God and about God's creation. And Genesis chapter 3 that Mel read for us this morning then flows on from that and particularly picks up some of the, uh, some of the symbolism in Genesis chapter 2. And it's, in a way, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are addressing the issue, how did it all begin? Genesis chapter 3 that we're looking at today in terms of the perished kingdom is all about answering the tragic question, where did it all go wrong? Genesis, like the Bible, is filled with different types of literature. The Bible is filled with songs and history and poetry and apocalyptic literature and prophecy and letters. There are lots of different genres of literature in the Bible. It's a wonderful, complicated book, but it has an overarching theme all about Jesus Christ, the King and his kingdom. And this chapter, Genesis chapter 3, is what um, has sometimes been described as theologically orientated history. In other words, it's history, but the writer isn't primarily writing to tell history. The writer is writing to communicate truth. He's writing to communicate good theology. Imagine being able to write in 24 succinct verses how everything that is an ill in the world happened. To describe that, I mean, there's a whole field of philosophy trying to say, why is reality the way it is? There are university departments, there are libraries full of theology and philosophy, and yet here in Genesis chapter 3 in 24 verses, 
the writer of Genesis is saying, do you want to know where it all went wrong? Do you want to know how the, the perfect relationship between God and human beings went wrong? Do you want to know how the relationships between man and woman and between human beings went wrong? Do you want to know where the relationship between human beings and the earth went wrong? Well, here it all is in 24 verses. And so the writer wants to communicate truth to us. And so, in verse 1, he tells us about a talking snake. Now, that may throw up all sorts of questions to us, but the writer doesn't mind because the writer is addressing a really, really big question. And the question he primarily wants to address is this. Where does evil come from? And so, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 tells us, now, the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. Those five words tell one of the most important truths of this chapter. The snake, who we read in Revelation 12, verse 9, is none other than the devil, Satan. It says in uh, Revelation uh, 12, 9, the ancient snake uh, the dragon who was thrown down from heaven is that ancient snake called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. So the writer of Genesis doesn't tell us the identity of the snake, but the Bible itself, as the overarching whole of the story tells us, tells us who the snake is. The snake is the devil. The snake is Satan. And the writer of Genesis wants to tell us this first and foremost. The devil was made by God. He's not equal with God. There's not some sort of thing of duality where there's a force of evil and there's an equal and opposite force of, uh, of good. That's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that God made absolutely everything. And he gave the angels and he gave human beings free will to either obey him willingly or to disobey him willingly. So Satan rebelled, the Bible tells us in different parts of the Bible, and fell under God's judgment. And so he wants us to rebel, and he wants us to fall under God's judgment because he, feel the party, he feels the party's been spoiled for him. He wants to make sure the party is spoiled for us. But the devil didn't have authority to introduce evil into the world. Because human beings, if you remember in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, both male and female created the image of God. God says to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Who's in charge? Human beings are in charge. Who are they responsible to? God. It's only through human beings that evil can come into the world. And this is the sad story of how men and women let it happen. There's a pattern that you and I will recognize. Satan, first of all, distorts the word of God's command by saying to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman puts the snake right. We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. 
Now, at first we might wonder, why is it that the man, why is it, why is it that the man is the one, no, sorry, why is it the man is silent? Why is it the woman is the one who's responding to the man? No, sorry. I'm, there's only like three characters, I'm getting confused, sorry. Okay, so why is it the woman who's responding? Why is the man silent? Where is the man? Well, verse 6 tells us he was there with his wife. He, along with his wife, as we learned from the end of Genesis chapter 1, has authority over all the creatures on earth. But the man remains silent. As the saying goes, all that is necessary for evil to triumph is that good men do nothing. We'll come back to that in a moment about why in this dialogue in Genesis chapter 2, sometimes Satan speaks to the man or he speaks to the woman and sometimes God just speaks to the man. The second thing Satan says is he questions God and straightforward says that what God has said is not true. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman. And then he distorts God's motives and says that God isn't fair. For you know that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. God knows this, the snake said. In a lot of ways at that moment, Satan's work is done. And the consequences of the man and the woman's inaction and action begins to unfold. Initially, the sin of inaction is mainly in the lap of the man. He has been the one who's been given authority from God or the command from God in Genesis chapter 2 not to eat the tree from the tree in the middle of the garden. So whenever God gives his command, we read that it was Adam who was there and that Eve was going to come. So whenever Eve answers Satan and puts Satan right in the first instance, and the man is standing beside her, it's the man who has actually received the command from God. And yet he says nothing. The woman is the one who puts Satan right. And the man remains silent as the woman has a dialogue with the devil. And then when, the, when she is led astray, he willingly is with her all the way through and she, he eats the apple along with her. There is in here the sin of inaction and the sin of action, but the consequences work out the same. That both ultimately rebel against God and all the consequences of all the beautiful and harmonious relationships start to flood out from that place of disobedience. So this is no ordinary piece of fruit. It is from the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is the moment of there being a loss of innocence. Perfect trust and intimacy is gone. The Bible tells us, Genesis 3, 7, then the eyes of them both were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The main problem here. The main sin is one of blatant disobedience against God. 
He has made the human beings and he longs to protect them and to love them, to bless them, that they would live under his blessing. As we heard about last week, God has created this beautiful creation in which there's a perfect relationship between him and human beings, between the human beings themselves and between them and creation. He's made it to be a place of flourishing and joy and fullness and life. And yet the consequences, not just of law-breaking, but also law-making start to flood. You see, the sin of eating, as it were, and the loss of innocence from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a decision not just to break God's law, but to make our own laws. It's the moment when human beings thumb their nose up against God and say, we know what's best. You may have made everything. You may have flung the stars into space. You may have breathed life into our bodies. You may have formed us from the dust of the earth, but you know what? We actually know best how to live our lives. Here's the wonderful thing that happens. Genesis 3, 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, because it was the man who was given the command, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, and who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? He speaks to the man because it was to the man that he gave the command. And so all the perfect relationships start to unfold the relationship between man and woman. When challenged, the man is not willing to take responsibility for his inactions and his actions, and so he blames his wife. And the wife, when she is challenged, well, she blames the snake. And as the well-knowing saying goes, the snake didn't have a leg to stand on. And so the Lord says, after he's judged the snake, he says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. The place of perfect harmonious relationships has been spoiled. That word desire may well refer to sexual desire, but in the next chapter, the same word in Hebrew is actually used about seeking dominion over. And so it may well be that that verse is saying, your wife will try to usurp your authority. And in turn, you will rule her harshly. Because the pattern that we've seen in the New Testament in Christ about the man laying down his life onto death, being willing to do that self-sacrificially for his wife is the model of good husbandry in the New Testament. And her response not surprisingly, is to say, if you're willing to die for me and give everything for me, then hey, I'll take your lead. The second thing that's spoiled is the relationship between human beings and creation. Cursed is the ground because of you, he says to the man. 
through painful toil, you'll eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. The third relationship that's broken and the most important of all is the relationship between human beings and God. As the man and woman turn their back on God in rebellion, he in turn turns his back on them in judgment. Human beings have said, we're going to go our own way, God, and they turn away. And he, the author of life, the source of all life itself, he in judgment has turned away. And that's why we read about the ultimate uh, bad news for us in Genesis chapter 3. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Satan lied when he said, you will not certainly die. What has happened is spiritual death, and spiritual death leads to physical death. And so you and I are well familiar with this in the world. We can see the consequences of Genesis chapter 3 in the world today, in our own lives, in Bangor Town, in Northern Ireland, in every country in the world, in every newspaper we read. We can see the consequences of Genesis chapter 3. There are people, many people, millions of people, perhaps even more than a billion people, who work hard in this world, and yet they go hungry. They battle with the planet. They battle with the environment, desperate to have enough food to eat. But the reality is there are millions, if not over a billion people, who feel as if they're virtually starving to death. The truth is as well that you and I, every single one of us, will taste death. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, there is no death. God created us to live in his presence forever. As Paul said in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. In other words, the consequences of sin is death. The consequences of turning our back on the one who is the source of all life, obviously, is that we are cut off from life itself. First of all, spiritually, and then physically. Death comes to us all. As long as there is sin, there will be death. And there is pain in childbearing and raising children. Should we, should we be surprised in a world which is broken that at times raising children will not be a heartbreaking pursuit? The judgments of God in Genesis chapter 3 are the obvious and inevitable outworking of what happens when you turn your back on the God of love the God who creates, the God who sustains life, the God who protects and blesses. When we turn our back on God's authority, these are the inevitable outworkings. So that's most of the bad news. But as you and I know, God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good.
as we sang earlier on, his plans are to prosper us. And so even in the midst of all the tragic news of Genesis chapter 3, there is woven into everything hope. There's the first mention of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Genesis 3.15, whenever God is judging Satan, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. The wonderful news is that this isn't going to be the end. The Bible isn't going to end at the end of Genesis chapter 3. It could so easily have happened. God creates a beautiful creation. He puts the pinnacle of creation there, Adam and Eve, the man and the woman. They decide to turn their back on God. He turns his back on them in judgment. He declares what will happen is clear. He will keep his word and there will be death. And the Bible could have finished the end of Genesis chapter 3. But amazingly, even in the midst of bearing children, even in the midst of raising them, which will be a difficult and hard pursuit, the good news is this, there are going to be offspring. There is going to be a continuation of the human race. And not only that, but in time, those human beings will crush the serpent's head. And how does that happen? The New Testament tells us. Because there's another man who comes on the scene, the second Adam to the fight as the hymn goes. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he will come and live and die as the unblemished sacrifice of God. And he will die to take his sins upon, our sins upon himself. And he passed through death into life and is alive forevermore because he has conquered death. And what is death? Death is the sentence for sin. Death could only be overcome when the consequences of sin were dealt with. And so on the cross, Jesus took all the sins of the world upon himself. And in that moment, God, who had been gazing always from eternity onto the, the face of his Son, as the Son took all of the evil of the world upon himself, all of our sin and brokenness upon himself, in that moment, God turns away. As he did in Genesis chapter 3, he turns his face away from the ugliness of sin. And where is the ugliness of sin? It's on top of his Son. As that wonderful hymn goes, the father turns his face away. And what does that do? It brings many sons to glory. And so Jesus of the cross cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer is so he could embrace us. So that Eden could be restored. That his relationship with us could become what it was in Genesis 1 and 2. That our relationships with each other could be restored as men and women and in fact the whole people of God. And that even earth itself, the land itself, 
would begin once again to cooperate. And actually there would be a new heaven and a new earth, a place with no tears and no sickness and no mourning and no death because the old order of things will have passed away. Why? Because Jesus Christ has made everything new. So how do you and I respond to this glorious news that is woven into the fabric? Even in the midst of judgment, God is throwing a lifeline. Every time God gives a judgment, whether it's to the snake or whatever, every time he throws a lifeline. And the lifeline in Genesis 3.15 is this. Jesus, the Savior of the world, will walk among us, and through him you and I will be able to conquer in his name even sin and death itself. Paul said, where death is your sting. You know, so often we labor under the misconception that somehow if we're good enough, we might just make the grade. Genesis chapter 3 leaves us no room for maneuver. At the end of Genesis chapter 3, we know that there's a death sentence over every single human being. Without Christ, you and I, every single one of us, have a death sentence over our heads because God has turned away from us and he's the source of life. And so in Genesis 4 onwards, we read the wonderful account of those who did come as new generations from the man and the woman. And we read how some of them live for long, long periods of time. But you know what the writer wants us to notice more than anything else? And they died, and they died, and they died, and they died. That is the refrain of Genesis chapter 4 to 11. Why? Because he wants to know that death is a, is a condition passed down from generation to generation. And why? Because we've thumbed our noses up at God. Genesis chapter 3 answers that tragic question, where did it all go wrong? But this wonderful book is all about the fact that there are so many more chapters to come than Genesis 1 to 3. It is not the end of the story. The end of the story is the new creation of God in Jesus Christ, the vision that John has in Revelation and that you and I are invited into that new story of God through Jesus Christ. Because the second half of that verse in Romans chapter 6, after it says the consequences of sin is death, the second half goes, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. There is only one way for you and I to conquer death. There is only one way for you and I to follow Jesus Christ through death into eternal life, and it is through Jesus Christ. It is in Jesus Christ. That's why we're baptized into Jesus Christ. There is only one way into life, and that is in the person of Jesus Christ, that we would die to sin and rise to life in Jesus Christ. Are you willing to turn your face to God? Because in Jesus Christ, God has turned his face to you. Are you willing to say, God, I admit the fact that I am part of the problem. I am part of the brokenness. I have willingly done things that I shouldn't have done and not done things that I should have done. But more than that, I was born a sinner. Before I breathed my first breath, 
I was a sinful human being because I was born with a death penalty over my head. My parents passed it to me, and I may pass it to my children. God's plans are to prosper. And so he has turned and is turning to each of us in Jesus Christ because he has plans to prosper us. And that begins with us turning to him and saying, God, I receive the gift of life. I receive your forgiveness won for me on the cross. I recognize that you died my death on the cross and that I now live your life by the power of your Holy Spirit living in me. It's the great transaction. It's Jesus saying, let me take your brokenness and your sin and let me give you my life. That's what Christian faith is all about. So please don't leave here today, first of all, thinking that somehow you're going to make the grade by doing good deeds. Because as Isaiah said, all of our good deeds are like filthy rags. But also be assured of the fact that it's a gift from God. That as he has turned to us in love, so we turn to him in repentance and faith. That's what repentance means. It just means to turn around and to say, God, give me all you've got. Because I know it's good. That means that we will submit ourselves fully to God and his ways. That will say, I am done with listening to the devil's lies which lead to death. I want to be in the virtual circle of life that, that leads to, to being forgiven and set free and growing and growing and becoming more like Jesus Christ. I want to be caught up in the kingdom of God. I want to be ambassador for the kingdom of God. I want to, to reestablish, you reestablish through me what you gave to be the initial intention of creation that we would be fruitful and increase in number, that we would fill the earth and subdue it, that we would rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every creature that moves along the ground. Because God has given the command and he's given his son to make sure that that command comes to pass. Because the Bible tells us the word of God never fails. And that's why Jesus came. That in this town, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in Northern Ireland, in the UK, in every place in the world, every place where God takes us to set our feet, that we will proclaim that this is God's territory, this is God's land, that our relationships are all blessed by God, that you and I can be representatives of the kingdom of God, that we with Christ can stamp on Satan's head and say, you know what, I'm not going to listen to a word you say because I belong to Jesus Christ as a son or a daughter of God. And I have the authority to stamp on your head and I have the authority to say, bless, bless, bless. I can just say to us as men and women, particularly the men who remained silent we hear in Genesis chapter three, bless people, bless your family, bless your wife, 
bless your friends, bless your children, bless your grandchildren, bless your great-grandchildren, and speak it out audibly. Proclaim God's blessing. Do not remain silent. And today, by the power of Jesus Christ, we are in the resurrected presence of Jesus Christ. He is here today to heal. So whether that's physical healing or emotional healing or mental healing or whatever it happens to be, then today, come and say, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ, heal me. Or perhaps today your heart is broken through bereavement. Know the fact that God never intended you to suffer because of bereavement because he never intended death to happen. And so any pain that you're carrying because of bereavement in your life, come to God afresh if that's something you need to do and say, God, just pour out your life and reassurance and deal with the pain that I feel in my life of losing someone dear to me. Or perhaps today, because of that curse of God on the world, Perhaps as ambassador of Christ, the Lord is saying to you today, be a champion for environmental issues. Wouldn't it be wonderful to see us as the people of God starting to be at the forefront of what it means to be blessings in our planet and in this world, to speak up for those who are vulnerable, those who are suffering, particularly because of pollution and because of land being torn apart, sometimes because we are hungry for resources. Perhaps you're here today and actually there is pain in your life because of what a man has done to you. Or because actually a man should have acted and he remains silent. Perhaps it's because a woman did something to cause you pain. Perhaps you're here today and the brokenness of a relationship between a man and a woman is sitting heavy on your life and on your heart. Perhaps even in your married life today, you're here today and you're saying, God, help us, please. I don't know how long we can keep going. Ask the Lord for help. And know the fact the Lord wants you to flourish. He wants your relationships to be good and to flourish. He wants us to submit to him and to be under his blessing and under his protection. He wants us to be free from the pain that has been caused to us. He also wants us to be free from the pain that we have caused to other people. And so forgive other people the pain that they have caused you and ask for forgiveness for the pain that you have caused other people. Because the Lord is here by his Holy Spirit and he's here to bring healing and he's here to bring life and he's here to reestablish the kingdom of God. And how is he gonna do that? Through you and me in the name of Jesus Christ. Because you and I have authority from God to rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the air and everything that moves along the ground. And God has said to us, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the whole earth and subdue it. He's given us responsibility to look after everything in his name.
but there's only one way that that can happen, that we do it in his strength, in his name, and for his glory. Shall we stand?